All right, well, this morning I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're in a three-week series called Biblical Justice. And uh, I think it's a fair question to say, you know, like, is this, you know, a sermon series that's more kind of like politically motivated than it is, uh, you know, anything else? You know, because we know that as we turn on the news and we read articles and things like that, it's like, man, you know, these sort of issues of justice, you know, are kind of swirling around. And so is this just an example of, you know, kind of the world coming into the pulpit, you know, where then you kind of find a political agenda and things like that? Well, I think that's a fair question. And so I think what we have to do, though, rather than me defending it, we have to say, well, did Jesus give any importance to biblical justice, to what justice is? Um, Did Jesus ever talk about that? Did he ever say, you need to talk about justice? You need to pursue justice as my people. And then, you know, specifically, do we see that anywhere else in God's word? Well, the reality, and I hope that we saw this last week, is that when we look all the way back to the very beginning of creation, we see a very just and gracious environment. We, we see things being done the way they're supposed to be. And primarily we see this justice being, with, being on display in the relationship that, that man and creation had with God. In other words, everything that God had created was reflecting the reality that he was creator. That's how it was in the beginning. That, that God had said, you know, for this to happen, and it happened, there was light. Uh, God had said, let there be trees that bear fruit and there were trees that bore fruit. And so all of these things took place and God every step along the way stopped back, stopped and said, and this was good. And he looked and it was good. And then when he got to the very end of his creation, he said, and it is very good. And so you have this very good relationship with God, man and woman being rightly related related to God, man and woman being rightly related to one another, their relationship with their environment being a wonderful and sustaining relationship. I mean, all of these things and God is being glorified. Uh, Everything that he intended is happening in these moments. And so that is the truest sense of biblical justice, this giving to God what is his, that God is rightly revered as God, That, that, that the hearts of all people just two at the beginning, but the, but the reality of all of creation is rightly aligned to this reality that God is God, that God created the heavens and the earth. And so everything is rightly related. But then injustice comes in, and we talked about that. The injustice of taking what God had created and said, do not touch, and touching it and eating it and taking it for themselves. And so it's important for us to notice and to see that there's injustice by rejecting God as God. That's the source of injustice in the world. It enters in right at the beginning in the garden, this injustice of of taking away from God the place that belongs to God alone. And then that creeps into every human relationship. And if we could take time, we could walk through the entire Old Testament, seeing example after example after example of injustice, that if we really trace it back to its root, it begins right there in the garden. And so we see God then going forward in the Old Testament of telling his people that matters of justice are important to him. He calls for in his word in Exodus, and then we see it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. We see this collection, this revelation of God's value system, of God's system of justice. 
We see God himself saying that he has concern for those that most people would have had very low concern for. He's concerned for the widow. He is concerned that she be rightly treated, that she be rightly cared for. God is concerned for the the person that comes from another nation, but says, I want to worship God as God. I wanna become back then a Judaizer, someone that would then become a Jewish person, even though they weren't born a Jew, they would be considered a foreigner among them. And he is concerned with justice for the, the alien, for that person that has come among them and become one of them, that they not be mistreated, maybe because they have a different origin story or a different skin color. There's a different hue to their skin than to the Jewish people. And so he's concerned about matters of justice all the way through his scripture. But what we see in his word recorded over and over again or is that his people, his people reject matters of justice. Rather than being concerned for the widow, they neglect the widow. Worse, they extort the widow. What we see in his word is that rather than having a regard for the alien, they mistreat the alien. They, they mistreat the foreigner among them and they even will, will do things to to put that person in a relationship of servitude because of where they come from. We see all of these examples unfolding in scripture of injustice. And so then we get to the New Testament and does injustice still persist? Does Jesus say anything about justice? Well, with our Bibles open to Luke chapter 11, I want to invite you to stand and to hear the word of the Lord beginning in verse 37. Now, I want to acknowledge at the beginning of this message that I'm only going to read half of this passage and we're only going to look at half of a passage that really is a larger passage. But for the sake of time today, we're going to look just at what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He goes on to communicate to those experts in the law in the second half of this passage but I believe that what he speaks to the Pharisees is sufficient for us today to understand the heart of what he's communicating also to the experts of the law without us having to trace through every word because I want the word of God to be what's on display and considered today. I want the word of God to be what we consider in every word. And so for the sake of time this morning, we're just gonna look at the first half, which really communicates what he says in the second half. So beginning in verse 37, hear the word of the Lord. As he, Jesus, was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools, didn't he who made the outside make the inside too? But give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees. You love the front seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, you are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. Father, today I pray that through the, just the reading of your word, 
that you would begin to align our hearts rightly with those things that Jesus said to the most religious in his own day mattered most. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This morning, I want us to walk through this passage just bit by bit and to see what it is that Jesus is putting on display and what he was doing to deal with matters of what he would call injustice in his own day so that we might rightly apply and consider these truths today. What we see first of all in this passage, and this is a corrective for all of us today, is that Jesus loved people far from God. Verse 37, he says, as he was speaking, now it's important whenever you get to one of those kind of statements that as he was speaking, that you look back and say, well, what was he speaking? Well, just before this, he's speaking in a public context. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. Your eye is the lamp of the body. And when your eye is healthy, the whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Take care then that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, then no part of it is in darkness. It will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now he's speaking a message right there about the importance of walking in the light, of having the light shine within you. And what's going to be revealed in the very next passage is that a man who thinks he's walking in the light, a man who thinks that he's helping shed light on other people's situations and on what they ought to be doing, and aren't you glad that I'm around to, to shed light on this subject for you, is the very man who is full of darkness. It's, a, it's the very man who is essentially infusing darkness everywhere he goes. He darkens the rooms. He darkens the understanding for other people rather than being the very light that he thinks he is. But notice that as he's speaking, this man who thinks so highly of himself invites Jesus to come and dine with him. Now, 2,000 years ago is not that different than it is today. You only want to have people over to the house that you wanna have over to the house. There was this reality that this Pharisee wanted to see a little bit more closely what it is that Jesus was saying. Now we know that anytime the Pharisees and the experts in the law kind of teamed up and they're present both here on the scene, it was usually because they had some ulterior motive going on. They, they were hoping to catch Jesus in his words. They were hoping to shut down this movement maybe by catching him with something to where they could say, see, this guy's leading us astray. So anytime you see them teamed up, you see ulterior motive. And this man, no doubt, this Pharisee who's inviting him to dine has ulterior motive, but he's willing in this moment to invite Jesus over to the house. And Jesus, just like you, carefully considered the invitation. Is this really a house I want to go to? Now, Jesus, in other gospel accounts, we see when he calls Matthew, the tax collector, that when he calls Matthew the tax collector, and then Matthew begins to follow Jesus, Matthew throws a party, as does Zacchaeus and other people that were noteworthy people that the Jews did not like. People that you didn't want to associate with, people whose house you didn't want to go to for dinner. And anytime Jesus went into those places where there would be sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and all these people, it was the Pharisees who would lament these things. Ah, he eats with sinners. 
He goes into their houses. He does all these things. Well, you know, I bet, doesn't say in the passage, I want to admit that very clearly here in this moment, but I bet that there was confusion on the other side at this dinner. Why is he going to eat with the Pharisees? I mean, doesn't he know that those people are just full of it? I mean, they tell us one thing, but then they don't do it themselves. Why would Jesus go and associate with those people? And there's the corrective. Jesus loved people far from God. It didn't matter if they were far from God to the right or far from God to the left. That didn't matter to Jesus. And in his lifetime, he was unpopular with everybody at some point. In your lifetime, doing what is right will likely result in criticism from all sides. Just go ahead and make a note of that. Doing what is right in your lifetime. Now later, after you're gone, you may be considered a hero. Did the right thing, but in the day of standing for what is right and righteous and just, you'll likely be criticized by everybody. So don't do it to be popular. Do it because it's right. And Jesus, Jesus in a moment where he knows that people who have been saying, man, he, he eats with us, he, 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 he dines with us, he talks to us, he teaches us, though that very crowd of sinners and prostitutes and people that were really following him probably were really wondering what on earth he was doing. But Jesus was going in to love this man. Don't miss that. He's not just going in to, you know, flip tables and take names. No, he's going in because he loves those who are far from God. And that same love for people far from God, whether they're on the right extreme or the left extreme or somewhere in between, ought to characterize us. When was the last time you had dinner with somebody you, you significantly disagreed with politically? Well, when's the last time that you had lunch with somebody you knew did not share significant parts of your own worldview? When's the last time that you went to breakfast with somebody who has done things that you know hurt other people and maybe even hurt you. You see, the, the invitation, the example of Jesus is right, right here is that he loved people far from God and we are called to do the same. But notice that right in this moment as we see Jesus loving someone who was far from God, this Pharisee was far from God. We're gonna see it very clearly here. Now the Pharisee would have thought, I'm very close to God. That would have been his self-evaluation. His self-awareness was a 10 on closeness to God. You ever do those little personal profiles where you're going through and you're like, oh, I'm not very extroverted. I'm not good at this. And that. But love of God, you know, I'm not going to give myself a 10 because you don't want to do that. You know, you don't want to be prideful about this thing. But I'll do a 9, maybe an 8, you know. But all the while, I'm a 10. Pharisee had the heart of a 10, but the practice of a 1. And we're going to see that confronted here. But notice what Jesus didn't love. This is what's interesting. Jesus didn't love ritual washings. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before din dinner. Now, we hosted a birthday party at our house last night with, uh, you know, uh, 
10 and 11 year old boys. And before they ate, we said, wash your hands. So are we guilty as a society of the very thing of the Pharisees, washing our hands? No, this wasn't so much about germs. This was about impurities. This was about a a, a different kind of filth that you picked up during the day. This was about, you don't know who touched what you touched last that may have been an unclean person and that then their uncleanliness on that inanimate object might've got off on you. And so before you put anything into your body, this recognition that what goes in matters, that you needed to go through a ritual washing as if the water itself could wash away the impurities of this world. It was a ritual washing based somewhat on that which was prescribed to the Levites in Leviticus, that when they would go through the ceremony of offering sacrifices and of doing the, the daily worship that had been prescribed at the temple, there was a place for washing. There was this acknowledgement that you couldn't come into God's presence. And so they had kind of extracted that principle of washing and said, why don't we do it all the time? Why don't we do it before every meal? And that would be this outward sign of just how pure and clean we are. But Jesus, Jesus did not love the ritual washing. Jesus did not love the ways that they had come up with in order to reveal how pure and clean they were. Let that be a wake up to us today. There are ways in every culture where we attempt to put on display, we're clean. That we, we go through the motions that maybe even come from a biblical precedent, but we've kind of extract, extracted it from its biblical context and kind of said, well, you know, like maybe this principle could fit. And so then we, we apply it in ways that kind of make us look a little better. And when people see us doing it, they say, oh, well, it really is pure, really is clean. But notice that Jesus did not give credence to that. Jesus did not participate in those sort of things. And that cost him. I mean, notice the Pharisee looks at him and says like, whoa, what's going on here? He's not impressed with this, but Jesus did not love ritual washing. Instead, Jesus begins to speak to what the Pharisees loved. You see, the Pharisees loved many things. Jesus indicts them very clearly of the things that they loved. Number one, they loved rituals. They loved the ritual of of cleansing their hands. And and there's a great irony of, of, of this purity culture that they had developed because those most concerned with purity, the Pharisees, often became the source of impurity for others. You see, that's exactly what Jesus means when he says, woe to you in verse 44, you are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. In other words, in the the religious system of the law, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. And so therefore, if you stepped on the grave of a dead body, you didn't know it, you're right on top of a dead body. And so therefore you're unclean. And he says to the Pharisees, you're like unmarked graves. People that come in contact with you end up unclean rather than clean. And this to the people who think we are the clean ones. We're the ones who understand it. We're the ones who get it. And they thought that they got it by their rituals. 
Second, they loved money. They didn't look like they loved money. They were clean on the outside, but Jesus knew their inner condition. Notice what he says, inside you're full of greed and evil. Love of money and evil. I mean, these are harsh words to a people that you and I would look at and say, these are the cream of the crop. These are the ones taking the law most seriously of any Jewish person in the Jewish world. And Jesus says, inside you are full of the love of money and of evil. And he notes, didn't he who make the outside make the inside too? They love tithing. Let that be a wake up for us today. They love tithing. Notice Jesus does not command them who would have been Jews to stop tithing, to stop obeying the law. But he says there are matters of the law which they were neglecting. That's what he means when he says you bypass. In other words, you put the emphasis on one thing and neglect something else. We all do that. Tithing. And then recognition. This is really the heart of all that Jesus confronts, and it's seen here. You love the front seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. You see, they love to be seen. They just didn't love to be just. They didn't love actually to do what was right and to do it from the right heart. The Pharisees loved rituals. They loved money. They loved tithing. They loved recognition. But as a result of those loves, these many loves of ritual, of money, of tithing, and of recognition, they did not love the poor. Jesus says, fools, didn't he who made the outside make the inside too, but give from what is within to the poor, and then everything is clean for you. They didn't love the poor. This, this confronts us because it's easy, like it was then, for us to evidence on the outside, evidence maybe in putting a, a line item in our budget as a church, maybe of putting a little cash in our glove box or in our console, that we love the poor. We, 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 we give, we give some. But like a present, the emphasis being on what's under the wrapping or in the bag. That it's not so much how the present is wrapped. Thank God for that because I many times have wrapped my own present. And I'm glad that it's not about the wrapping that mattered, but what was within. Jesus says the money is the wrapping paper. It's what's within that's the real gift. In other words, it is the spirit with which you do the thing that Jesus is concerned with. In other words, they were going through the motion of caring for the poor, but they were not caring for the poor. They looked like they were caring for the poor, but they did not care for the poor. And I have to be honest with you, this confronts me again and again and again. It's easy for our lives to come somewhat inoculated from the poor. It's easy sometimes for me 
to forget my own story of how I grew up in poverty. It's easy for for me to forget the shame that comes with poverty. It's easy for me sometimes to forget what it's like when you don't have something that other people consider basic and then you begin to, to try to like withdraw from relationships because of that thing. It's easy for me to forget. But I want you to know, if you're here today and you would say, I'm poor, you are loved by this church. There is no shame in this church and more people than you could ever imagine identify exactly with where you are. They may have just forgotten a little bit about what it's like. I love that as I've gotten to know so many of you and have heard the backstory of your life, that there are many things, many things that unify us. There's many things that allow us to come together in a very unique and special way. Last night, as I spoke to um, a, a professor, actually he was one of our guest preachers here, Mark Johnson. Mark Johnson had the, the responsibility of, of pastoring uh, Edgewater Baptist Church, the church that I had pastored after, that I had pastored before I moved to Lake Charles. And as we talked about his experience, which came to conclusion last December because of increased responsibilities of being a professor at the New Orleans Seminary, we talked about that this was the first time that he as a black pastor had pastored a a primarily white congregation, that up to that point in his life and his career, he had pastored black congregations. And he said, you know, he was like, pastoring a white congregation helped me see more than I've ever seen before that all the churches are the same. We all face the same issues. He was like, it really is no different. It really is no different. The same difficulties over here. And he named some names. He said, you know, Miss Miss Eldridge is, you know, Miss Sarah over here. You know, Miss this is this over here. And he just started kind of likening the two. And he said, you know, it's really, it's all the same. But what perspective for him to be able to talk through the difficulties and the joys within the pastorate from different perspectives to then bring that truth to bear on me, someone who desires to continue to lead a multi-ethnic congregation and to be able to then say from the experience of one that there's so much more in common with us in Franklin Avenue Baptist Church than would set us apart. That we have this great togetherness that is substantial even in the challenges we face, that there is more and more and more as we pursue a gospel unity that unites us together than separates us. And that's the power of the gospel. So if you're here today and you would say, according to federal benchmarks, I'm in poverty, then I want you to know you are also in family and you are loved and there is no shame here based on economics because it's not part of God's kingdom. The Pharisees did not love the poor. The Pharisees did not love justice. Jesus says that justice is as seriously, is to be taken as seriously as giving. Justice means the administration of what is right and fair. 
Now, I know that this is a church concerned with justice. As I have spoken to so many of you about different situations, you have a, a burning desire to see what is right done. You desire to make advocacy for those who have no voice. That's who you are. That's who you were when I was pastoring at Edgewater in town that made me want to partner in doing ministry. You were concerned about the injustice of the adult entertainment industry, of how women become just sexual objects who are abused and often drugged and manipulated, put in positions of being indebted to clubs and things like that, that then almost always results in a life of prostitution. You were concerned about the injustice of that. I watched Pastor David Crosby as we would go to city council meetings and sit in there together to listen and to then be able to speak in an advocating role. I watched as you as a church said, this is not a right system. It does not result in human flourishing. It's an injustice and we stand against it. Christ our Lord advocates such justice for what is right. But please, please be mindful that then when it comes to conversations about race, that we are mindful that we allow God's word to be the primary lens by which we understand this conversation. Because as I have entered into conversations again and again and again about what represents racial justice, there are many perspectives that are being kind of informed from Facebook, they're being informed from specific news outlets. They're being informed from specific authors or organizations. And we should be able to have civil conversations about those, at many times, very divergent ideologies. But we are called to be a people who say, yeah, but, but we come back to how God defines justice. We come back to a right pursuit of justice we pursue what is right, rightly. And that is essential for our pursuit of justice, that we pursue right, rightly. Because if we pursue what is right, wrongly, you always end up with more injustice. It's just the way that it goes. If you pursue justice by unjust means, you end up with more injustice. Even if you thought you had a short-term gain, it was a long-term loss. And so the word of God again and again and again pulls us into the long game of righteousness, the long game of pursuing a pure justice. It's the long game that civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King were playing, where they allowed the word of God to inform their understanding of nonviolent protest. This is what informed that. Many say, oh, it was Gandhi. Gandhi was the primary influencer of that. Even Gandhi acknowledged Jesus. He may not have believed, but Gandhi himself was noting the example of Jesus in the way that he dealt with the inequities of the class system in India that informed part of what Martin Luther King did as a civil rights leader. And so it's important for us to see the origin of even something like nonviolent protest in the word of God. But the Pharisees did not love the poor. They did not love justice. And then Jesus says it. He says, 
and they did not love God. Jesus says you can love cleanliness, you can love tithing, you can love going to worship services, but not love God. That's haunting. Because so much of that characterizes what we do. That you can love tithing to the church. You can love attending worship services. You can love keeping yourself from being entangled in the the sins of the world, but not love God. Woe to you Pharisees, you give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, but you bypass justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, Jesus connects justice and love of God a little more closely than we would like. You see, I find that there's kind of this spectrum that even within the church, we say, you know what? All we need to do is devote ourselves to loving God. We don't need to talk about justice. That didn't even be part of our conversation. That's just political jargon that we're pulling into the church. We just need to focus on love of God. Well, that sounds like what they might have said here. It sounds like what they might could have done there. Just focus on the love of God. But Jesus says, you have to also include justice, doing what is right. There were others on the other side that said, you know what? I'm sick of talking about love of God. I just want to pursue justice. I just want justice, 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 justice. And Jesus says to them, you can't really pursue justice without a true love for God. You see, we're trying right now to separate the two. That's the, that's the temptation in every generation is to separate things that God has married together. And the temptation for us is to allow there to be a camp that says, well, we love God, and there to be a camp that says, we love justice, rather than clinging to the word of God that says, love one another. Love one another. Can you not value the one who has a bent toward justice and say, that's good, I need that in my life. And, and you who have the bent toward justice, can you not look over and see the one who says, yeah, I just, I have such a love for God and say, that's good, I need that correction in my life because I, I bend toward justice and to realize that it's the man in the middle who pulls us together constantly by this one thing that we cling to, the cross of Christ, his sacrifice, his body for our body, his blood for our blood once for all time to come back to a true gospel that binds us together, that allows things to marry and stay married, that belong in marriage, justice and love of God. Do not let this world divorce those two things in your mind and your heart. Do not let anyone divorce what God has married. Love of him and justice. And these from the words of Jesus. This morning, you may realize that in your own life, you've allowed a divorce to take place. You said, you know what? I am sick of just this love of God, the, maybe just the gospel where I'm pursuing justice. And maybe you've said, you know what? I am sick of anybody talking about justice. I just want to go to church. And I don't want to hear about this stuff. I don't want to talk about justice and what's right in the world. I just want to study the Bible. This may be a morning of saying, God, I'm sorry that I allowed in my heart things to become divorced that you married together. Justice and love of God. 
Because this isn't my idea. This isn't Chad talking to you. This is Jesus. Woe to you Pharisees. You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, but you bypass justice and love of God. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. This might be a morning of repentance. I know it is for me. Of turning away from a coldness toward the poor. Of having cash in my console, but not loving my heart for the poor. For not caring more when I wrap when I give that gift wrapped in a few dollars, when I help someone with a meal, to not then also love them more deeply. I don't know exactly where this passage meets you today, but I know that the word of God is living and active. And it's effective for conditioning and shaping us to be who God desires us to be. So will you respond to the goodness and grace of God this morning? God, we pray this morning thanking you, first and foremost for the man in the middle, who stood with his arms extended, bringing these things that were once separated together for standing in the gap for us, giving his body for our body, his blood for our blood once for all time. May we return to that. May we return to the reality of his crucifixion and that only by his death and only through his burial and resurrection are we made whole and are we reunited and reconciled to one another and only in Christ are we given this ministry of reconciliation so may there be nothing in us today that pursues right standing with you repentance of any sin apart from a confidence and a focus on Jesus so please fix our eyes on him in this moment pray for every person in this room wherever your word met them, I pray that they would surrender to it right now. Pray for surrender in every heart that says yes to Jesus, that gives him everything until every part of our lives reflect his word. In this moment, if you're here and maybe you just need to spend time confessing and repenting, I invite you to the altar. There's just something special about coming and kneeling before the Lord and saying, God, I confess my sin to you. I leave it here with you and I ask you for forgiveness and to experience those words of God that say forgiven. And he said it on the cross. Everything needed for your forgiveness and mine was already paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. But we are invited in God's word to confess our sin. And so I invite you to do that even now. You may be here and need prayer. I invite you to pray for one another and if you need prayer to come and I myself will be here as well as others to be able to pray for you but let's all stand now as we sing a song familiar a song that communicates our full surrender to God this morning
Lord, we surrender to you, and we thank you that you use your word to lead us to surrender. It's your word that shows us your love, the love that Jesus had for all people who were far from God. May that love be manifest in us. It's also your word that shows us the things that didn't matter to Jesus so that we can rightly see, and then it's your word that confronts us through the example of others that we might easily indict to be able to see that some of those same loves are in us and that some of the things that Jesus commended that we are to love are absent. So Lord, thank you for how your word leads us into righteousness. You get the credit, you get the glory. We thank you. May we truly be able to say from a a heart that is fully surrendered, that we surrender all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. As we close our time together today, I wanna remind you about a few things that are going on in the life of the church. One is we have a, a new initiative that is intended to bring families and all generations together called Life Together. It's gonna be on Sunday evenings. And I realize that by adding something new to the schedule, uh, by adding something on a Sunday evening, it's like, oh, that's taking away you know, from family time. That's taking away from rest. My hope is that this will have been worth the effort of coming back and of spending time together as multiple generations come to bear life on one another. We are hoping that our children will grow up in a meaningful relationship with those of you that are 65 and older within this congregation who have walked with the Lord for many years and who can impart to our children and our youth life lessons, things that you have gleaned from years of walking with the Lord and the joy of watching children discover and learn new things. The the joy of having relationship with them Because we know from all manner of things, but especially from God's word, that he commends one generation proclaiming to another generation his works, what he has done. And so in the context of learning how to work with wood and doing music and learning cooking and learning about automobiles and all those things, we are going to proclaim from one generation to the next his mighty works. So join us. Make plans to join us. Tonight, we kind of do a kickoff of life together by watching the Super Bowl together. That'll be taking place up here in the Fellowship Hall at 5 o'clock, and I want to encourage you to make plans to attend. But then next week will be when we really kick off our Life Together programming. And the reality is that there is still need for folks to be able to help make that happen in a healthy and successful way. Now you may say, well, Chad, I just can't be in charge of another thing. That's perfect. We just need helpers at this point. All of the leadership is in place, but we need additional people who can just walk with one group of kids from one station to another. We need people who can just be in the room so that as they're working with hammers and nails and wood and all that, that there's an extra set of hands to make sure that that's going well. We just need helpers. And if you want to help, you can sign up at the table that's in the foyer right beside the child care check-in table and talk with Faye today about that. 
So those are two things that are going on, life together and our Super Bowl party tonight. Invite a friend. This is a great chance for us to be able to reach out and to bring new people into our fellowship is at fellowship events like this where we're going to be able to take time. And during the halftime you know, break, we're going to be uh, talking about what life together is going to look like and introducing some of the leadership of that. And so this will be a fun time tonight. We've asked that if you want to bring something, bring a side dish, bring a dip, you know, bring a dessert, a favorite king cake, you know, all of those kind of things tonight, but we're going to be providing hot dogs and chili tonight for our dinner um, at the at Super Bowl party. The doors will open at five o'clock today. Well, I've asked for my friend Eli Palmer to come and to close our time in a word of prayer. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand for our prayer of sending. And Eli, you voice our prayer, and I'm so thankful for you, my man. If you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for, today, for this great day of worship. I come to you today asking that you give our heart the urge to go out and serve. But help us remember that sometimes the people we need to serve are our neighbors. But also that we would love you with all our hearts and do not just say it, but we do it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.